There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, neither do I. Right now on the Power Chord Hour, it is an absolute honor to be talking to the punk rock icon that is John Beauvoir. John has just released a brand new book called Bet My Soul on Rock and Roll, Diary of a Black Punk Icon. It documents the decades and decades of amazing stories and moments in John's career. There are quite a few. I am uh, currently in the middle of reading the book and uh, extremely excited to talk about the man who has lived it all. I mean, who who better to talk to than the one who lived this book? So, uh, you know, John, how how are you, man? Everything's good. Everything's good. I'm happy that, you know, the book is finally out. It was a lot of work. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, you know, I got this story out. That's, you know, I think it's um, very important. It was something that was very important to me to get done. I, I, as a as a reader, I, I can also say I'm happy you got it out there. I'm, I'm really... Uh, I'm enjoying it very, very much so. And something, something I got to say, I mean, even, even before reading this, I thought it, but like reading the book, I would say a good word to describe you as range. You have, you have range. Like it's, I don't think anyone could define you as just a guitarist or a bassist, a record producer. I don't think someone could just pigeonhole you to one genre. Like you just, you do so much and you've done so much. So like, has that been, has that something that you've been like conscious about in your career, like that you want to mix things up, or is it just kind of, is that just kind of how your career has went? You know, it went that way, but um, I did want to do it. You know, um, I always liked the challenge of doing different things, you know, and not feeling like you're obligated to do one thing. You know, and like for example, you know, if you you're black, you have to do R and B and hip hop. <laughs> you know this does this kind of music or this one does that kind of music i always just love songs you know and um that's another thing i see between there could be a song that's done by foreigner that actually could be done by backstreet boys that actually could be done by you know of the heavier band but if the song is great that's what comes across so i've always focused on that for one thing but also it was a challenge for me like you said about the different careers i said i didn't want to just one thing i said you know i know the music business is hard and i i want to see if i can be known independently for each thing as an artist as a producer in his own right as a songwriter in his own right by writer writing by you know for other artists and then also yeah i, I you know the genre thing just started happening but then after the ball's rolling for a while you start saying wait a minute i'm only missing three you know two genres so <laughs> i might as well keep going <laughs> Yeah, at that point, it's like mine as well. Let's let's just keep this going. I mean, because yeah, really, I I do think that is that is something with you. Like, uh, and I I think it's a great thing. Like, no one, you're not known as that one thing. Like the guy who's the bassist of that band or the guy who's that record producer. Like, people can know you. Like, I'm sure you meet people who they either know you from this band or they know you from this or that. You know, it's not it's not just one thing. Which, you know, uh, it's a very—it's an interesting point that you bring up because that's one of the reasons why I had to—I started doing some things that brought everything into one, like under one umbrella, because um, I started noticing that, like you said, that's a positive thing, but it can also be negative, because then people get confused as to well, where does he belong? On a metal stage? On a pop stage? <laughs> on a, you know, I didn't think about that part. That is—that's a really good point. 
You know what I'm saying? And those kind of things come into play. That's why, for example, I did my Rock Masterpieces record that I released um, actually about, well, it's probably a couple of years ago now. But I did that record because I wanted to kind of bring all my different projects together under you know my name so that people know, yes, Crown of Thorns, that was one of my projects. You know, Voodoo X, yeah, that was one of my projects. And with the live show, I've gone further by doing the same thing, but adding even other songs, like a song, a couple of songs I wrote for Kiss, or I'll play My Brain Is Hanging Upside Down. I'll add Shocker, you know what I mean? So that people can know. And then the book is also kind of the icing on the cake <laughs> to basically bring it all together. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because I knew, I was aware of, of, and I won't say everything, I was aware of a lot of what you did before the book, but I'm reading it going, Oh, like he did that. Like even I'm, even I'm shocked. Like, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've followed your career and I, I already kind of knew that again, you had range, but reading it, you're like, wow, I didn't realize just how much range, but for like you, for you personally. And, you know, we're talking about this and how we really, I don't feel like can pigeonhole you to like one thing or anything like that in your mm-hmm. own mind. Do you, do you think of yourself primarily as one thing, be it a guitarist or bassist or producer or singer? No, or? I see, um, I see myself primarily as far as an artist, as, as a, a singer, that's pretty much that, uh, you know, uh, more than a bassist. Cause through the past years, I've only been either you know, I play a little guitar on stage, but it's mostly, you know, singing. That's what I've been focusing on. That's what I always wanted to be, you know, <laughs> and uh, somehow you got sidetracked and ended up playing bass here and that there and this there, you know, but that was really my ultimate goal. And, and as a producer, I try to put that on aside. Like I, you know, let's say I'm not an artist. I'm, I don't do anything else. I want to be able to say, well, he produced the remotes. So he's a producer. Or he produced that person or that person. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that, that make that that totally makes sense. And it's nice to see, I mean, if that if that was your journey, like you want to be singer, it's it's uh it's nice to see that you've made it there. You've made it you've made it to the top of the of the singing hill. You got there. You're doing what <laughs> you want <hill>. now. <laughs> well, you know what? You can never say you yeah, you know, what is made it? That's always a big question. That's a good point. What's success? Some people see success as, you know, personally, I you know, success can be something that people can chase their whole lives and they never feel like they get it. They can have hits. They could play, be playing in a band, playing stadiums, but because they're in the band, they don't feel they succeeded because <laughs> you know, it's not their show, you know, or you know, there's, there's always, uh, you know, those kind of, of things that happen. But to me, if you could, you know, live and make money somehow and earn a keep with your you know, what you your business as a singer as a musician then i would say that you're successful is that is that something that you feel like you learned as your career went on because i think you're totally right like i think ego and all these different things have come into play where people don't realize just because you're not like the main person or you're doing you're doing this or that it's like i feel like at some point you have to get out of your own way and go like no like these are all like you're you are doing accomplishing things like was that was that something you learned along the way to kind of you know realize what what success could be that it doesn't have to be this one definitive thing? Yeah, I, I really learned that along the way um, because I think that if you if you are constantly chasing this rainbow, it becomes extremely difficult and you remain extremely unhappy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that makes because total people, sense. 
People can always make you feel like, oh man, you know, wouldn't it be really great? It's too bad you didn't really make it, you know. <laughs> too bad you, you know. Wow, you you should be a household name, or you should, you know. And if you listen to that stuff over and over and over again, you know, you can always end up feeling like you're a forever failure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I have a lot of friends in the business, believe it or not, who I feel take these things for granted who are like, oh, well, we just played Madison Square Garden. Yeah, that's nothing. You know, I only like <laughs> playing stadiums. You know what I mean? I don't want to play those little clubs. <laughs> there is perspective. That's- that is that is true. It's like where you're standing, like you start realizing like no matter, and it's very healthy, like you've, obvi- you've honestly or obviously gotten to that place, but like it's so, it has to be awful to be someone in the music business who really – from a lot of other standpoints, people are looking going, you know, this guy's made it or whatever, but in their head, they're still going like, it's never enough. Like it's always right. someone has something better. And it's like, well, how are you ever going to like, how are you ever going to enjoy what you have done? Like the fruits of that's your right. labors and stuff. Like you can't do that that's if you're always looking at right. someone else. That's right. That's so true. And so, yeah, it's something I learned along the way because you find yourself always like, oh, it's always more. You know, well, yeah, the, I know I have friends who are like, you know, have 20 hits, you know, whatever in Korea or with this, and they're not happy because it's not 30, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, number one records, you know, or it's just ridiculous. So that I learned that along the way. And I think it helped me to, you know, be able to just like you say, be, be happy for what you have, be happy for everything else that you get. <laughs> and yeah. Every time a success happens, which, you know, they come and they go one year, you have a whatever pampers commercial <laughs> next year you have a the song that's uh you know in a major film or next year it's a korean hit or next year it's your hit you know what i mean yeah. but um you just keep it and a couple years goes by and you have nothing you know and it just keeps going like that and um that's the music business it's a roller coaster and as long as you're in there and surviving and doing your thing you know i would say you should you know be thankful for what you have nothing wrong with trying for more yeah yeah no don't make it a prerequisite you know what i mean of of your life yeah yeah you'll never enjoy it you'll never uh, enjoy what you're doing but let's let's get in let's get into the book now you know how uh how long did it take to put this book together like how how long has this been something you've been working on like how far back did this start uh getting worked on well i've been making notes you know i've been making notes i'd say probably for 15 years just uh, yeah, no, just every once in a while. I've been, you know, time really goes by quickly. I know that I was contemplating writing a book when I was working with Stephen. When I think about that, that's in 2005. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? That I was already thinking about doing this. And um, so I would put little stories down because I, I kind of said, whenever I get to this, I'm probably not going to remember half the stuff. So oh, I better <laughs> now, you know, make it a point to put some of this stuff down. I'm sorry if this got a little loud here for a second. Um, but to, to put some of this stuff down, um, you know, and so that I don't forget, you know, and maybe after a certain period of time, I'll have a bunch of them. So when COVID hit, um, there was a, a writer, a journalist, actually, who was speaking to me. And then he kind of made me, you know, people have always said, well, why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a book? And then we started working a little together and there was a, a publisher, Chicago Review Press, that was very interested. They just got it. You know, they just said, this is not just a music book. It's, you know, we see it as for, for culture. It's a pop culture book. It's a, this. A, so I said, you know what? Maybe this is the perfect time. And it was. And I had a good year. You know, I had more than that. But with COVID and everything, to be able to focus on that book. 
No, that is that is awesome. I mean, I assume, right? This is your first time ever ever putting together writing a book, right? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is, and it was quite, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's something that you're proud of, though. At the end, when, when it's done, and I can look at it and say, "Wow, you know, this is a," it's the way you felt when you first released the record back in the day, and your name showed up on whatever a Kiss album. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you buy that vinyl. And you'd just look at it and go, whoa, 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 you know what I'm saying? You'd be like, yeah. whoa, look at my name on this label here. I can't believe it. You know, that's what we would do. We'd pick up that vinyl and just stare at it. <laughs> <laughs> because it was your first time, you know? But well, see, that's a great point too, because yeah, like at this point, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen your name on on tons and tons of records, but how many books have you seen your fa- or your name on at this point? You know, on the front of it, none. So yeah. that's, that's why. So that's it. It's um, it's a rewarding thing, and um, and I actually kind of learned a new skill in a way. I've always, you know, I'm a songwriter, but writing a book is different. So I kind of got forced into doing. You know, most of the writing myself because the guy who I first had, you know, COVID hit. He had to deal with his kids, and um, you know, they had to be homeschooled, etc. So he had to bail out the project. Oh, geez. And then I, you know, then I brought John Ostrowski in. But by the time that all came together, I was like already into a groove. Yeah. You know, so it was more like I would send him things, he double check things, rearrange some things here and there. But but in essence, I ended up writing the book, and then of course the company would edit. And I went through like three editors <laughs> over there, which is a pain in the ass to be honest. But anyway, <laughs> and fact fact checkers, you know, who check every little detail. Oh, I was in Paris doing this. Oh no, but that street is not across the street from that street. <laughs> 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 which you're telling stories i mean there's some of those you're going back decades like i'm sure they're gonna be a you might not remember everything exactly the way it was that's right it's really hard yeah that that is yeah that has to be a different process and like putting a record together like something like that it seems a lot longer too it's a lot longer and it's really i think that took most of the time is the research to remember exactly when things happen i don't have the best memory i'm not gonna lie no, it's just not. I don't. <laughs> you know, I can't. There's some things I just don't remember at all. <laughs> I mean, it's like, for example, I had a situation. I lived when I first was in the plasmatics. I was what 19. I was living in an apartment. Um, it was in Brooklyn, and it was the apartment of a famous black woman singer, old time singer. And we think it was what's her name? Oh, God, what's the Famous old time, I almost forgot now. See, I'm forgetting. You see what I mean? <laughs> but anyway, there's that memory. Thing. And there goes that memory. And I'm sitting here and I said, I heard that name over and over, kept coming up. And my brother tells me, that was her. You were living in her apartment. But I could not remember it. And he, I, I wasn't convinced that <laughs> he was right. You know? So you don't want to do things like that and find out what. You know? But um, things like that, I just can't remember and i mean i lived there for like probably two years with my first wife <laughs> i mean so that has to be weird someone like telling you like your own like correcting you on your own life go actually actually john that wasn't what happened or that's this I know, is who I it know. was <laughs> it's pretty crazy it's um so that that's a tough that was the toughest part for me of writing the book of actually getting things in the right order when things happen for real, <laughs> remembering things not to be way off or, you know, or to be off at all. 
you I, know, so all of that stuff made it difficult. I mean, if somebody like, like if someone like really kind of put it out there where it's like, all right, you have to think through your life and like write it out and th- like, I, that just sounds overwhelming. <laughs> that sounds so overwhelming to think out your whole life and all these that's parts. What it, that's, what it it, that's what it is. Yeah. That, and going, we're talking about going back what 45 years too wow jeez <laughs> you know i have a hard time remembering what i did three days ago. <laughs> oh that is that is oh, funny you know anyway. you know i wanted to ask too because like you know i'm i'm like kind of uh i'm like i don't know i'm a few i'm a few chapters in now and really enjoying it and something i noticed i mean early on in your in your life even even in your childhood you did quite a bit of traveling so like i was wondering when it came when it came to like touring and stuff later on and really not even that later on in life you were touring by your you know early teens but like do you feel like that early traveling in your youth like by the time it came to touring like you had less of that allure of being on the road and seeing things like did that change it at all or no were you still pretty like all about, excited about it. yeah excited about all that no i was excited about it it was very different in traveling i did it wasn't that much it was going to haiti or going to france you know but it wasn't like being on the road with the band you know what i mean and, yeah and the whole thing it's such a different new experience that that is you know yeah, so no. it was very exciting at the beginning. But right from the beginning, working with Gary U.S. Bonds, if that's what you meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working I mean, with him, that was exciting. Yeah. yeah, that had to be. That had to be pretty. Uh, which, I mean, I wanted to ask, too, I mean, because you were the, that that's your beginnings. I mean, musical, you know, your musical director with uh, Gary U.S. Bonds, like, what what do you for those for those unaware and I mean I I guess I kind of I kind of know but even I guess I'm asking like what do you do with the role of a musical director like what was your job okay. with that Your job is to make sure that well for example he first would say to me okay I don't like to rehearse so in other <laughs> words he doesn't want to sit and mess around with details of like okay we go to the chorus now we go to the verse now you know what I mean he, he knows the song I already know the song so it's your job to make sure that these guys that are in here, your band, or you know, because it changed a couple of times. Sometimes it was at first it was my band, then then it was guys that he had found, but he wanted me to deal with them. And your job is to just make sure that whatever that set list is that he has, that you're where you're supposed to be. Like he might say, okay, a week from now we're going to meet in Florida, Sarasota, at this venue. You know, we're going to be there. I'll see you down there. Get there the day before. And that's and know all the stuff. So literally, when you wow. get there, it's you know you you get on stage and you just start playing. And I mean, maybe at sound check, he might go through a couple of things here and there, but it was like literally, there were times where I'd have to like be telling the band certain chords as we were going. Oh my if god! He'd like, if you'd like to have to pick a song out of you know, because those guys do that, you know, they just all of a sudden, hey, we're gonna do this song. Boom, they start doing it. So it's like, you wow. Know, you know, just start following his mouth and, and go. And meanwhile, you know, tell the other guys. But that's it. That's the responsible the responsibility of the musical director to make sure that the music is in place and ready for Gary. Ooh, that's I mean, that sounds more like responsibility than just being one of the people in the band. Just being at least oh, yeah. at least then you're just like, well, I mean, I'm you know, I just got to worry about the bass parts. Or I worry about the drum parts. Your yours is uh, I mean, you got to worry about everyone, which I mean, he yeah, also. 
like he also, I mean, putting the faith in you too. And I mean, it's so young to be like, Hey, I know these songs, which I mean, yeah, I mean, I get that, you know, he knows the songs and everything, but mm-hmm. even to put it in you, it's like, all right, get these guys ready for me. Like get these guys to a point where they can just a drop of a hat go, Hey, let's put, you know, like we, we're not That's sticking right. to a play. <laughs> like it doesn't sound like he's sticking straight to a set list. Like if he wants to do something, he'll throw it in there. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, it's it's um it's a culture. It's like there are certain artists, you know, that are kind of end up working together. Even like Gary U.S. Bonds ended up um, being produced by Bruce Springsteen and Little Steven when he had that hit. Um, what is what was that? This little girl is mine. Do you remember the comeback hit? The number, yeah, remember that hit? I, I have heard that one. Yeah. So that was a big hit for many years after his original success. But those guys are all like that. You know, Bruce does that to his band. You know, he could be up there. He's got 100 songs in his in his overall set list. And nobody knows what he's going to play when. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So at any time in the middle of the night, he could turn around and go, okay, boom. And the guys have to know it. You know, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> that's like, so Gary was like that. And a lot of times we did... Um, these old Dick Clark oldies shows. So you had people like, you know, the Platters, Chuck Berry, and Bo Diddley, and those guys would sometimes show up missing players. <laughs> it was just a complete mess. And, you know, a lot of times I'd have to jump in and, and handle that. So, yeah, it just, it just worked. I had a, a pretty good ear for that, very young, and that's it. I just, I just did what I did. And it helped later on in life, there's no doubt about it, because, you know, eventually you're always the musical director because for all my records if i'm going to go on like now i'm going to go do festivals i have to start rehearsals with the band uh, a couple of guys never played with them before you know so now i'm gonna have to teach them all the parts <laughs> and go through the whole thing you know and you know you can rely on guys for a certain uh certain amount of it that they go and they go learn things on their own but it's never right. It's always the groove is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like they hear the wrong notes. And, you know, so, so you're you know, so, so, so you're in it. You're in. <laughs> wow. So you're still yeah. That's amazing. You're still basically doing what you were the doing back thing. then as that's as right. musical director. It's funny too. You yeah. just you brought up uh, that you know like the Dick Clark tour and everything. Because I I wanted to ask you about that because you were talking about like jumping in with like guys like Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and stuff. Like when when you do something like that, because I mean, again, you were you were a teenager at this point. Like when you get on stage with someone like Bo Diddley or Chuck Berry, I mean, do you just have to not think about like were you already confident and comfortable enough to get up there and play with them, or do you just almost have to put your head down and not think about the fact that the guy you're playing with right now is like it? I mean, it's Chuck Berry or something like that. Like, how do you do that so young? You know, it's really funny when you're when you're really young, you you're actually fearless, and these inhibitions and everything that you have older, <laughs> you actually don't have at that age. So I, I can remember I'd look at it like a great challenge. Ooh, this is exciting! It's going to be fun. It wasn't where you'd look at it like, oh no, I'm going, you know, going on stage with with this one or that one. You know, you were so comfortable doing it with Gary and. It's not like the songs weren't that difficult. We're not talking about you know songs that have a million chords in them. You know, I mean, Bo Diddley plays with his guitar completely open strumming. He doesn't even play a chord. He just oh, puts geez. one finger <laughs> over the whole guitar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You know, and they're doing like these, you know, just, you know, sometimes a lot of the songs are very repetitious and stuff. So you get a handle you know, of it fairly quickly. But to your point, you're so busy concentrating on making sure that you're watching him, 
whatever they're going to do. And just literally, you have to watch that in, the, in time to be able to move your fingers and kind of give direction to the other guys who are watching your hands and your mouth. <laughs> wow, jeez. <laughs> that's that's how it worked actually (laughs) i mean i guess there is like like as you say that i think you almost have to be like you're talking about that youthfulness and the kind of i don't know fearlessness the confidence and stuff i i guess maybe yeah you really do need that because if you were overthinking it it may not it may not go over well if you started getting it in your head with that it's better just go just go screw it i can do this like i can do it like there's no why would i think otherwise i can go play with them that's right that's exactly right. You don't think otherwise <laughs> because you haven't lived the experience of getting in trouble, you know, messing up chords and getting yelled, you know, all the yeah. negative things that could happen. You haven't had the chance to experience yet. <laughs> so, so you just see the positive. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's a, go ahead. no, I mean, it's weird. It, uh, it really did. I mean, reading, Reading again, the people you're working with so young, yeah, that that being that way, that mindset definitely probably I think I think it helped you. I think it helped you very much to just kind of like I can do it because if you don't, if you and you could do it. The other thing is, I guess at the end of the day, you did do it. So I mean, you were right yeah, in thinking yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. You'd be surprised when you're young. <laughs> like I said, a lot of the confidence that you could have up there. Hey, listen, that's what makes a lot of people you know really successful when they know. Uh, did you see that um what do you call it that film about the tennis players king richard no i haven't seen that oh you should see that it's just talking about how it was like literally preordained that these girls are going to be the best tennis players in the world <laughs> and it was so planned since they were like literally could walk wow. <laughs> like, and in the end of the day they became that so the point i'm making there is when you're young because sometimes i'll look back and say okay now i know i wrote a book and i wrote all the details but i say but how exactly did I get from that band in the school to kiss? <laughs> and you say, I know there was no plan, right? And so I was living a million miles away from the city, nowhere even near in here these bands. So how did that happen? You know what I'm and you know, it's, it's weird, you know, when you think about it. You don't know how. <laughs> things happen. It's crazy. It's, uh, but anyways. That's... So, yeah. You know, it's um, yeah, yeah. That that is just it is it is wild. I loved uh, I love reading uh all that stuff and your your you know musical beginnings and everything. There's some really like again like talking about range. I mean, long you know, there's tons of like punk and rock and all all this stuff and everything. But like you even you go back further. I mean, you're playing with legends who like started rock. You know what I mean? <laughs> like Chuck Berry. I, and you stuff. know that that's true. That's true. The flamingos. You know, that's like right. I, I, you know, I think it's been a great thing i mean did i use it 100 percent to my benefit do i have ten thousand number one records no but still i think that it was a real help for you to get the most out of music because you know you learned harmonies from the flamingos you learned basic discipline of playing from gary u.s bonds and you know just basic basic musicianship you know and it's not like these guys were bad gary u.s bonds players one of them who i, I still used up till now was tommy lafferty and he had just graduated from Berkeley. If I'm not mistaken, the keyboard player was also from Berkeley. I mean, so you're talking about these, these guys. Are good. Are, they know what they're doing. They're great musicians, wonderful musicians. But <laughs> that's where things that you learn working with some of these guys like Gary Bonds. They could be the greatest musician and know every scale and everything you can think of. But to get them to groove, 
where the song feels right, you know, just playing three notes can be impossible. You know what? Now this is this is something I would actually like to kind of talk about for a second too. As you bring it up, like, do you feel like there's a good? You need that balance of like of music theory and training and stuff because there really is that. There's that technical side versus the. I mean, like, well, I mean, like, look at like the Ramones. The Ramones I talk about tons on this show. I mean, you worked with them, obviously. You know, those yep, guys. Yep, yep. Those guys aren't Berkeley. You know, they weren't like classically trained by any means. But they had that feeling. They knew they knew how to do what they were doing. They were good at what that's they right. did. So that's like, right. That's right. And it's and it's not that that's easy because you'll be surprised. I mean, I've had this conversation a few times. You'd be surprised how many uh, what was I gonna say? Um, uh, people that think they're great Berkeley guys, great metal guitarists, great. This, they cannot play a simple Ramon song. <laughs> I cannot get them to play it. It's impossible because you know it, they they they're taught different things like a metal guitarist does a lot of uh, do you play at all do you play a little bit yeah I, i'm mostly a bassist okay. i play I, okay so you play yeah so you you understand what i'm going to say so basically metal guitarists are taught to have up and down strokes and their up and down strokes especially in speed metal is they're very precise and uniform okay everything's exactly the same volume everything and then you get into punk and you got to play Bonzo Goes to Bitburg or any one of those songs. It's you can't really explain where the accent is on the notes. First of all, it's all downstrokes, and you have to do it, but you can't do or else that doesn't work in punk. So to try to get a great guitarist who's learned all that, you know, all those skills to go back and relearn how to just is can be virtually impossible. Yeah, I always find that so interesting. I uh, <laughs> I took music theory, but on like a community college level, so no, by no means like Berkeley, but even even in that, I watched people who I played with, and like it almost destroyed their it destroyed their creativity after a while, like. If you let right. it, you, you can start losing that where you think too much in that square box. You know what I mean? You, start, That's right. you think of music too much as there's rules and I have to do this and this is my scale and these are the notes. And, the, and yeah, there, there's that. It's always interesting, the world in between where technicality versus just creativity or feeling or That's whatever right. it feeling. may be. Feeling is like, I think, the, the hardest thing to find with, with um, bassists especially. Bassists and, um, and drummers. Yeah, and he, the rhythm section basically. You really need a rhythm section with some feel. You need feeling yeah. in there. And it's not it's something you can't learn because it's where the note sits on the beat. It's where the snare hits that might just be slightly behind, you know, what it would be if it was um quantized. You know, I mean, yeah. there are these little subtleties which I've found to be the hardest to teach people. Um and I've come across that you know, a lot of times. And punk, that's like, or drummers or guitars. I tell you, it's probably one of the hardest musics to play. And you're not going to believe me, but I'm telling you. Oh, no, I can, <laughs> I can believe that. No, that, that makes, that makes total sense. That is, uh, that does not seem like it'd be an easy one to play by any means. Because it's not defined. It's just that maybe that's the answer. It's not, it's not like you can pick up a guitar and you're going to play that song. You're going to play the chords to the song, but you're not playing the song. Yeah, you know where you can maybe pick up a, a classical piece or something else or whatever, and and you know once you know all the notes, all the notes are pretty much you know you know what I'm saying. And yeah, yeah. You kind of know that, 
it might be easier to handle than this other thing where you can't see exactly where that is happening and not happening. Why is that note a little bit not quite as loud as that other note? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and the next time it happens, it's someplace else. And the time after that, it's someplace else. <laughs> it's like, forget it. You, you'd spend like years trying to dissect one song. I, I love that. I, I love I love discussing that stuff and like like dissecting it. And I I think that's uh yeah. I'd always any any day of the week I would rather a player who who has that feeling and might not be right on. Like maybe they're a little before or just a little after the beat, but like it's that's the swing or that's the you know I mean yeah you'll know it when it feels right yes you know exactly. You know, it's like it's almost like if you listen to ACDC or something. You know, there are rock bands who have found this, like ACDC, or when Foreigner had songs like Urgent, and you know, and they had they found that group. Def Leppard has found it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's kind of weird, but so there are bands that that find that um that that thing that we're talking about. You know what I mean? So it's, it's crazy, but you, anyways. You did but, that. I feel like I feel like your bass playing, like in the plasmatics. I feel like there's like because including punk can be a genre where, and sometimes it needs it. Where you're just like, if say you're the bass player, you're just playing straight like just root notes, just straight eighths right, or sixteenths, right, right. and sometimes that's mm-hmm. all you need. I feel like with you though, something you don't always see in punk is, and maybe maybe you pulled this from like other you know other places and past influences, but like you would you know you would move around on the neck you wouldn't stick to just a root note and you'd throw those little accents you throw those little things in like we're talking about where it's like you just kind of move it here and yep. like, like it it pushes the song like maybe people don't realize it but it like it's moving the song along whether you realize or not the bass is doing a lot of that like was that something you kind of that's right you're 100% right and it's one of those things that um and you're right. I think that comes from old time influences cuz to me I call it like you have a mental Rolodex, you know what I mean? And you just, I just, you keep putting things in that that archive constantly, constantly, you know? And it's um, from everything, from playing with Gary U.S. Bonds, you know, who made me play. Do you remember that song by Jackie Wilson? It's an old song. It's like, your love, that song. Yeah, yeah. Higher and higher. Higher and higher. Yeah, yeah, higher and higher. I know that song. Great song. You know? It's like, you know, I learned lessons like playing with Gary. I used to be all over the neck, right? So that song, the bass is just boom, literally for the whole song. But I would do that and then one day he said, okay, boo boo, you're going to sit there and you're going to play that song for 15 minutes and I don't want to hear one other note. <laughs> he said, "Let me see if you can do that." And I sat there. I think it was one of the hardest exercises I ever had to learn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just keeping it straight, just playing it straight. Just, that's it. No, no, no little run, no riff after four bars. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. You know what I mean? It was almost like uh, going to an old school where a guy's sitting with a ruler and, you know, just like, do this 15 minutes. But, but you know, you learn things from that. It taught you groove. It taught you, you know, like, for example, if I play bass on a Kiss song, I noticed because uh, I'm, I'm finding that a lot of people can't play those bass notes for some reason because I'm using the ups also so you know you know i'll use the ups and downs and syncopate a little bit and people like you say used to just 
just down. Yeah. <laughs> so when they get dumb, dumb, they're like, uh oh, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> they know what to do with themselves. <laughs> exactly. And um, so you try, I guess that comes from different kinds of playing, which is automatically in your, they're just there. It's in your head, it's in your fingers. So when you play, even if you're playing that rock part, that, a little bit of this or that might sneak in there somehow. And I think that that's what makes it a little bit more unique. Like, a good song to listen to is Master Plan by the Plasmatics. And Ooh. the bass part. You should go back and listen to that bass part. If you're, you know, you're a bass player. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, it's funny you bring that up because I wanted to, I, I wrote this down because in the book you talk about that bass line and how it's like Motown punk, which I love. I, I had to go back and listen. Like right after I read that, I'm like, all right, I got it. Oh, so yeah. No, I went back and listened because I have this actually written down. Like I was going to ask you. Because I do hear it in there, and like James Jamerson, who played like bass on almost all those old Motown songs. I mean, he's one of the greatest bass players of all time. Like, yep, an influence on you, obviously. But like, have you ever like besides just maybe playing along with the songs? Like, how much have you dissected those? Like, have you ever really kind of went back and just like really studied those bass lines or tried to see like what yeah. he's doing? Because I mean, you're doing it in those songs. You can hear Jamerson's influence. I mean, like you were saying, you're doing punk Motown. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, I, I hear my ears. I'm, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I hear things. They just, it just comes. So, for example, I, if I'm sitting listening to, I'll listen to a Motown station now, you know, on Sirius, for example. And I'll listen to a song, and the baseball, I hear it clearly. Exactly what he's doing, every accent, every little mistake. You know, some of the songs had little mistakes in them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the charm you of know? the song. I know, but I he, and I just hear it, and I, I and what happens is it just goes into my head. Like back in the day, I would play along to those songs, and I try to get them exact. If I was doing one of you know, that's how I learned to play bass was playing along to you know Zeppelin, playing along to Kid, <laughs> playing along to Motown, playing along, you know Michael Jackson, all that stuff. I just you know I just learned as many songs as I could, and I think by doing that, you're just constantly getting more more skills, you know, besides the basics of the theory and knowing your notes, etc. The other thing, you're just getting a bunch of different riffs, a bunch of different thoughts. Somehow you'll use it differently or you'll put things together and mix and match, you know, the way your creativity calls for. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 makes a lot of sense. And I honestly, I feel like you have the mind of a music producer. Like the way that you can think of, like, because musicians, I feel like a lot of times, and I think this is what a good producer does, and I, I think you probably do it, just the way you're you're like discussing music now. Maybe a musician in their head knows some of these things we're talking about, but don't mm-hmm. clearly, they can't get to it. Like, they can't put it into words. And I feel like you can. Like, you understand it from a way that someone might in their head go, well, I want the song to sound like this, but you can get it out. You can actually get that out of their head, even when maybe they can't get the old the own thing out of their head themselves. I think you're right, and it, but that's that's where the producing comes in, because you're right. You have to, as a producer, you have to be able to, you know, explain to people what it is that you want. As a musical director, you have to be able to explain to people, you know, what you want. And as a producer, you have to be able to to hear everything as a whole. So being able to be able to hear all the individual parts what their purposes are, where the holes are, <laughs> you, you know, so there's a lot of thinking that goes into, you know, producing a record besides the sonics and the frequencies and everything else that goes with that, um, you know, but so it, you become very detail oriented. 
Yeah, you. I mean, and you've had it seems like that musical mind long before you were even doing. You know, even even before you applied it to music production. But where does music? Yeah. Where does that come into play for you? Like, when do you start after like musical director and all that? Like, where does the production side of starting to work on other people's music and record them and stuff? Where does that all start coming into play for you? When they were saying, when did that come into yeah, play? Yeah, yeah. When did you start doing that? Well, you know, I think the first one. Let me see. Well, the songwriting started with John Waite. I think John Waite was my first cover. Do you remember on the Missing You album? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a song called Dark Side of the Sun on that record. That was the first cover I got. (laughs) That was a song that was supposed to be on my album if I would have gotten a solo deal, which I didn't get. So, (laughs) but but instead of the solo deal, the record company guy said, but I do like that song, Dark Side of the Sun. Uh, Can I use it for John Waite? (laughs) I said, okay. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but it was, again, a, a good songwriting credit. After that, you know, since I'd always wanted to do it myself anyways, I think my my records were the first ones, my demos first. And then from there, you know, I, I really started getting into music production. And then when, when I first made my solo deal, finally, well, no, even before that, because working with Steven, we spent a lot of time in the studio working with some great engineers. Bob Clearmountain was like our regular engineer. Shelly Yakis, you know, these are the top, top guys. So Jimmy Iveen, nice. <laughs> you know, so with these guys, being in the studio with these guys on a daily basis for years, it was a good two, three years. That's where I think I, I learned, you know, a lot of what I you know, learned later. Would you, so you kind of, and I always wonder that with musicians, it sounds like you kind of paid attention to that side. Like some people go into the studio, I feel like do their part and kind of like just, you know, whatever, leave or don't get ingrained in it. And then other people kind of go in and go like, oh no, what are you doing over there? Like, what are you doing with those buttons? Are you doing with this or that? sounds like you were a little more like you studied that stuff and paid attention. Yeah, I was always, because, you know, I always, I hated being dependent on anything or anybody, you know? (laughs) So anytime that I got I get into anything, I immediately start thinking the end game of how can I do that, just in case I don't have that guy to do that. Yeah, and you need you know to in music. Yeah, and pretty much in, in a lot of things, to be honest with you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, which I'm finding these days. You know, it could be to get a mechanic to fix something. You know, what I mean? <laughs> you know, and sometimes you better learn it yourself. It's, you know, all the crap you have to go through with the mechanics trying to rip you off. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But anyways, it, back to music. Um, yeah, it's um, I just lost my train of thought because I went into this mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what were we, what were we talking about? Oh, like uh, you too. Yeah, production and getting into producing and paying oh, attention right, to what yeah. they're doing and everything. Paying attention, that's right. So like I was saying, I always like to you know pay attention and learn as much as I can for something because I want to be able to take it home and try to reproduce. I want to know, how is he doing that? How is he getting that sound? And especially when you're young like that, I'm like, you know, I want to have my own studio. I want to be able to do that, you know? Yeah. Some people don't care. You're 100% right. There are a lot of people who are like, no way. I don't care what he's doing. I'm not interested. <laughs> I've got friends like that who could care less. Just yeah, record me and let me go home. That, and you know, there's there's some there's some positive to that, you know, because doing the way I did it, always being the one making your own records, playing instruments, I'm constantly working. You know what I'm saying? Well, oh, I doing, can imagine. You're doing time, all parts of it. You're always working. That's the downside of that. Where you know, if you could just sometimes I even wrote it in the book that maybe I regretted at one point that I didn't just let go of the reins. You know, and maybe let a now Rogers or somebody just take the reins and just go. 
but I was just so, uh, you know, I was just so protective and, you know, over. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's like, it was like it was a, your baby. You didn't want anybody, <laughs> you know, to, to um, you know, take it over, or, you know, make you lose control. No, it makes sense. It's your creative. I mean, it is. It really is your creative baby. I mean, you don't you don't want people messing with it. You want it a certain that, way. That's right. That's right. I mean, but, but you know, like I learned later on, it, it would be nice though that you open it up a little bit. And like you know, a lot of people they'll use the skills of the other people to better their things and to give them more power to go back to doing what they were doing <laughs> in the first place. That's the smarter way to do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I see what you're saying. I, I I see what you're saying with that. That that yeah. also makes that that makes sense as well. Oh, you know what I mean? In other words, they go and they use the great you know producer that gives them you know three number one records. Then they have the control, and they can do absolutely anything they want to do after that, <laughs> even though that's not really true, because I, I know that there was one big artist, I'm not going to say who it was, but who tried exactly that method. They let her go back and do her next record, which flopped. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work as well. Yeah, it didn't thought. work as well. And then they told her, okay, are we done? Now, oh, no. <laughs> go back and sing. <laughs> yeah, maybe stick to singing. Don't exactly, 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 exactly. Uh, you know? But you know, I, I'm also interested. Like when it comes to uh, you know producing and your history of producing bands, do you feel like like is there a difference at all going in if you know the people personally beforehand versus not knowing them? Like, does that make it easier or harder if you go? Yeah, out? It, it makes it easier. It makes it easier because you know the whole thing. The personalities are a big part of producing. Because half half the uh, job of producing is it's like psychology, you know. You have your, you have different characters in the band, like the Ramones. You know, Edie's a one kind of character. Joey Ramone is another character, and you had to deal with them individually to get them to do certain things, to talk them into doing things, <laughs> to, to let them agree to put keyboards and bells on their records. <laughs> you know what I mean? things like that but anyways you know so when but i knew those guys before because we used to hang out and cbgb's and this and that so i think that takes a layer away you know because people that you know, they need this as a producer a lot of times the guys have to everybody has to respect you they have to believe you know what you're doing you know what i mean yeah. it's like because the same way i said that you're protective of your product you're probably producing somebody who thought he could produce his own thing. <laughs> and the record company told him no. So he wants you to prove to him why you're there. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. That can't be fun having to have that against you where it's like the guy already in his head has this thing like, well, I could be doing this. Like you need to like, that's, prove that's your right. worth. That's right. Exactly, exactly. And you'll say things, you know, I don't want to get this detail about it, but you'll say things, they'll go, are you sure about that? I think it should be this, or maybe it should be this, you know. That's the, <laughs> those are the challenges you can have as, a, you know, being in the studio. Or if you're well-respected, you know, um, which comes with time, you know, <laughs> and success, you know, then people will leave you alone, you know. But if you know people, they already know you, they know what you've done, they've worked with you, they're confident what you're going to do with their vocals, they're, you know, they're like, let John do it, we know, we know, instead of like, oh, no, yeah, what's he going to do? <laughs> do you, uh, like, as a producer, I imagine you do this, is there a lot of making people think that it was, that something was their idea? Like, sometimes you have to get things done by making making them believe that they got there. You know what I mean? You also have to put it in their head, but for them to you even know, get it done, they have to think that they did it. Well, I'm not going to say I haven't used that technique. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
I have, I have, but that's not, that's not something that I like really endorse and do a lot of, you know, it's like, you know, if he, somebody has an idea, I have an idea, you know, whichever idea is best, <laughs> I will use. And if it was mine, I want him to know it was mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true too. Yeah. You want the credit of it. I guess, I guess there's that part of it. I don't totally want you to think it was yours. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's true. You can be, and I, I've been victim to this, you know, you can be too nice too sometimes where, like you say, you're constantly trying to make other people feel good. You want to make them feel good about what they're doing, you're, 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 you know, so you're constantly giving in, you're giving away your energy and your <laughs> stuff to, to just make them feel good, you know, and that's, um, you got to be careful about that, you know what I mean, where you're overcompensating, if you know what I'm yeah. saying. Oh, you're a wonderful singer. Oh, no, you're as good as all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't feed that ego too much. Exactly. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Have you have you found in your uh you know in producing and stuff like going in with a younger band who maybe doesn't have a defined sound or doesn't know what they're doing versus you know a band who's been around what like a Kiss like a Ramones who obviously by the time you're working with them they've been around for a while you know fans might have a certain way they want even the band themselves want things to sound a certain way like is it do you find it easier working with a younger band who doesn't have such a defined sound yet as it does with a band who already kind of already has a you know somewhat established sound no i think that um because if you have to start finding that sound that takes a lot of work you know and a lot of times you know with new bands you might you're gonna have different members, different guys who have different opinions, you know, and everybody's trying to find this sound. Where by if like you say, if you go in with Kiss, you know, Paul and Gene have a very fixed idea of what they're trying to do. Now as a writer, you know, you're contributing, but I always look at it like that contribution is almost as a fifth member of that band. You know? So so anything that you're doing is in support of what the message they're trying to get across. That makes you know sense. sense? So basically, you have a lot of the work done for you already because they already have their direction. They already have their sound. <laughs> they already know what they're going to do. They know exactly how they're going to lay down their guitars. They know how they're going to mic their amps. They know how they're going to, you know, <laughs> everything. All of that is already done, you know, yeah. for, for, for the most part, you know. Um, yeah. oh, but, you know, there's one thing I just missed, actually. I'm here talking also as a writer not just as a producer. No, no, that's about the same. Because even if you're producing a band like Kiss, they use a different setup than how people record now. They're still using the old setup of a producer and an engineer. Oh, okay, who are yeah. separate guys. You know, these are separate guys. So, um, you know, so even though you can have a new producer, they may have an engineer that's been with them for five albums. Yeah, so yeah, to, yeah. So to that point, what I just said, that would ring true that they'd have everything set up. They'd know how to get their drums tuned. Everything would be ready. You walk in and it's like, okay, we're ready to rock. You know, then it, you know, you have more time for creative. That so makes that, that actually does make sense. That makes uh yeah. Instead of, I guess I didn't think of the going in with a blank slate can be kind of difficult. If you have to like fill that filling in those blanks that you might not have um, to so much with an older band, you know, or a band who's been doing it a while. That's right. That's right. That's right. But um, you know what? Uh, I also also wanted to ask you too. Like, with bands, when you go in, like right away, like like how soon do you realize if it's going to be a smooth kind of a smooth recording, you know, session or experience? Can you tell right away if things are going to go well or if it's going to be hard? Like, is that something you know almost instantly from working with the band? 
uh, you know, you think you do. Um, you're like, <laughs> I, I feel like walking into sessions and going, and you just see how things are starting, and you go, oh, brother, it's going to be a tough one. You know, <laughs> just set your mind. And then you're just like going through it the whole time, like, oh, and you're going through And then all of a sudden, you know, you get towards the end, and it clicks, and you're like more excited than anything. Wow. And you're going, how the fuck did this come together? I'm sorry. You did it. Anyway. <laughs> oh, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you know, and it's um, so that can happen. <laughs> that kind of thing happens too. It's really it's true. Or Keeps you, you on your feet. And, yeah, or you think that everything. Oh, these guys got it together. It's going to be easy. And then you know, it, it, so there, in other words, to answer your question, there is no definitive. It can go either way from <laughs> any direction. You know, you're just you're just praying to get to the finish line where you could. Listen to that thing finished on a two track and say my job is done. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, I mean, that is great. On, you know. yeah, that, that, is, that is funny. You know, I mean, living living in an age too, like just just one more like on music production, but like living in age now where, you know, I mean recordings recording has obviously become so much easier. I'm sure throughout the decades you've seen it change so much, like whether it's how much it costs to record an album, how long it takes, like all that stuff. And we live in a time now where like there's so much you can self record. There's a lot of like we produce this ourselves. We did you know mm-hmm. we self produce this and that. Do you feel like there's something kind of lost when with that like the role of a producer? You know what I mean? Like I feel like I feel like nowadays maybe people don't think of that role as much. Like the stuff we're talking about, like the things the things that you've mentioned again. Like your your mind works in a way that you don't just automatically have if you're a musician. Not everyone has that, and I think that's something very important of a producer. Like, do you feel like some of that's lost nowadays? Like, people don't don't think about how important a producer and stuff is? Yeah, I think it is lost. And, I mean, oh God, you know, you know, luckily, I'm still involved in different types of music. So I see a lot of people work, you know, I, I see a lot of different working environments. Like, I'll still go into the studio with the big drums and the big room and the this and the big board. But at the same time, I'll, I'll be in Norway or Sweden watching a guy with a laptop create a track that's amazing in a matter of three hours. You know what I mean? Probably different from the 80s. <laughs> you know, it's a different skill. Um, and the old-time producers, the way we had them, the guys who just go in who were more creative guys, maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, you know, even the ones that were creative, but also, you know, those guys, they just moved on to something else. So now instead of working on a Neve or an SSL or something else, they work on Pro Tools or something else like the Bob Clear Mountains. They're still working or all the Lord Algae guys, you know, for example. But the one thing that's different is that these guys that I just mentioned are engineer producers. They're doing both. Now, Okay, back in the day, going back there, what it was, there were many that were producers separate from the engineer. Okay, okay, you know what I'm saying? The yeah. producer would sit behind the desk and he'd tell people what to do, and that's that's it. He'd tell the engineer, "Okay, I need more of this on the drums. I need more of this on that." Blah blah blah. So that, unfortunately, that role has disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> it's become like a hybrid almost. Like now, it's just you know, one position. Yeah, it's not like it's completely disappeared because you still, I guess, have some of that in Nashville or, you know, things like that. But in general, it's kind of disappeared, you know, because, like I said before, a lot of kids have gotten so good, so good at doing things on a laptop 
and you know with minimal stuff and they they're creating so many things like for instruments now you can have live drums i mean logic has the thing where you hit a button and think drums stop playing themselves you know what i mean <laughs> it's like, it's like, like you know what i mean it it's kind of point it's taking away you know and and the worst of it is that the drum sound that you're going to get in there is going to be better than what you'll get in all those big rooms <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> because the thing that they're getting in there comes from uh, the big room in other words they're drum samples from clearmount and from this from that yeah so in other words some guy with the laptop is getting access to all um the tools necessary to do the job that it used to take three four ten musicians strings orchestras to do wow so the whole business has changed you know it's like even, even that i mean let's face it motown they'd have an orchestra in the room yeah is Think about it. You know what I mean? How many people they have. Now you send it to one guy in Norway or Finland, you know, who's a great orchestrator, and he'll create you an amazing orchestra that sounds better than any real orchestra, <laughs> using their sounds <laughs> and just playing it better. Wow. <laughs> and then, you know, and give you an orchestral arrangement that nobody in the world would know that it wasn't an orchestra. Yeah, that's so. I don't know. It's so conflicting because, in a way, it's beautiful that we had. Like, it's it. It is nice those things exist, and at the same mm -hmm. time, like we're saying, like, like those things exist, but then people almost think they're a replacement for the yeah. people, and it, and it's not always that way, you know. Well, okay. To your point, I'm going to say this. You know, <laughs> I have a friend. Okay, a friend, and we a very good friend. Where you know, he's a producer as well. We work together all the time. He's a German producer. He had a huge hit. Uh, a song called um, Scat Man. I don't know if you remember it. No. It was like a, a big hit. Huge hit in Japan. So more than Michael Jackson here. Huge everywhere. Nice. He did that whole recording on a Mackie board. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> this is when he first started. Okay. So he had a little Mackie board. And I don't know. A couple of ADATs or something. And that song was as you just said. Now he sits here like 25 years later. He has every piece of equipment, every sample you can imagine, <laughs> everything. But he can't replace that hit that he had on the Mackie Boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that Mackie, got to give it credit. You know what I'm saying? So I guess the point <laughs> I'm making on this whole thing is that it's it's not really the board and the equipment it's also the creativity of the person even with all the tools you know what i mean yeah yeah no that's a good point i mean just because you have like a million dollar studio even back in the day you may have top of the line analog equipment and everything but if what you're recording isn't good you know it doesn't doesn't make the that's song right. good that's right it doesn't make the song good you know it's um and the problem is that they they want it all in one person now. That's what makes things tough. You can't be the, the like for example, I do a lot of digital recording now. At first, I started it with Max Norman. You know, I had analog machines that I bought down, twenty four track machines in my house in Key West. Um, this is going back yeah, some you know some years. And you know the web it was messing them up. You know the reels, all kinds. Of, I was like. <laughs> I couldn't find anybody to come fix them. You'd have to fly somebody in from Miami. I said, this is ridiculous. I said, you know, I was about to make the next record on Lost Cathedral for the Crown of Thorns. And Max Norman, I brought him down. You know, he did Ozzy's record. You know Max Norman? Did, um, uh, Diary of a Madman. Did, oh, yeah, um, yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of great records, Max Norman. Anyway, so he flew down for us to start working on digital records. And we had the first PC, you know, that could have like maybe, I don't know, 12 tracks working <laughs> without the thing crashing. You know, <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we went through the biggest nightmare trying to make that record on a PC, which we finally got done. But I'm telling you, it was months of struggling. So, I mean, later on when I left Key West, I was told to go, I was asked to go to um, Berlin for a while to work with artists for BMG. I took a certain period of time and just said, listen, I can't be a producer that's not an engineer anymore. I have to be able to engineer my own records. So I'm going to take X amount of time and logic is what everybody's using in this country, which is, you know, now Apple. And I said, I'm going to learn this well. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like I'm going back to school. And I'm going to learn how to work with all these guys so that I can be a producer and engineer producer. That way I can continue to do my business. I can do songs for films. I can make albums on my own alone without anybody else in the room, <laughs> you know. And so that's uh, that's what I did. But you had to go back and relearn or learn a new skill. Yeah. Everything you already knew, like, it's like, all right, time to, you know, I'm sure some of the foundations the same, but there's a lot where it's like, no. You got to, now it's time to like learn a whole new thing. Yeah, well, it's different. I mean, before you're a producer, you, yes, I knew how to walk into the room and tell the assistant engineer, pull this up on, you know, this, this, I need a little more compression out of that one, uh, you know, do this, that, you know, or you knew all the stuff in an analog studio in that environment. So the only difference is now you're turning the buttons. Oh, you have okay. to go back compression. You have to learn, you know, what's 10 in compression, what's 1, you know, where, <laughs> what's the 300 <laughs> hertz uh, frequency, where's the bass, you know, you have to learn all this stuff, you know. And, and that's what you have to learn, you know, and you have to learn it well because the record companies these days, especially in like even the pop world, for example, they want songs that are finished. Even as demos, there's no like these days of somebody walking in with an acoustic guitar and saying, I got a great song. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, they, they want like, you know, they want to hear a final song that sounds like the record is done. And when literally all they have to do is take their artist and just put them on the record, replace Jeez. the voice. That's all. Matter of fact, they, they even end up keeping half the demo vocals. So, wow. <laughs> So it's gotten to that point where, you know, you have to be able to make literally finished records or you're always dependent on somebody else. Yeah, that is such a far cry from like, including with labels, like where bands go, like get holed up in a studio for a year or two and like keep adding and changing things like, no, the demo needs to be real. Like you need to be fully realized in the demo. We need this done. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's not that that whole two step process as far as from what I do as a songwriter. I think that two-step process is is gone. You know what I mean? It's it, that's it. <laughs> you have to, if they if, if they like the song, ninety percent of the time they'll buy the files from you, <laughs> wow. so that they could use the exact same files that you used. That's so. And the wild thing is, too, it's not like this is ever like end all be all. Like this will also change again. Like you know things it could be with uh, there's vinyls coming back i mean who knows it's a crazy world yeah i feel like people that's something that's something i've noticed now is like talking about you know the, the stuff with people who you know like yourself who see it change so much where i think that's something you realize is yeah it's like you you really don't you can never think that this is 
what the music industry is because it's going to change again and i mean it could be months it could be years like yeah well that's true we don't know what's gonna happen you know it's <laughs> like you know every every time we think we know something i think one one little story that gets me uh, i get a kick out of is now rogers is an old friend of mine and he's um he's you know he's a fantastic producer he's great great producer you know he's produced everybody from you know um, are you familiar with him he did everybody from um david bowie's let's dance to you know, since the Sledge and to Madonna, and I mean, every, all, every, all the big names, all the big names. And so he, you know, we were speaking one day and he's telling me, oh, man, I don't know what these kids are doing anymore with this uh, with dance music these sounds. I have no idea what this is. He said, all I know how to do is think, 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 you know, same thing I've been doing. And he said, so <laughs> I'm just going to just keep doing that and see what happens. Or I'm going to go work with some of these guys, you know, and see what happens. So he ends up working with Daft Punk. Oh, right? wow. And they end up doing a song um, that is that was has no electronics. It has him doing his little ding a ding ding thing. <laughs> that punk guy has a uh, he has like a vocoder voice that he uses. Yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. about it. It's not like those big dance synths or any of that stuff. And it's very basic, a regular bass, real drums just playing. The song is Get Lucky. It oh, became shit. his biggest song of his career. <laughs> Wow, that song is huge, <laughs> and it's the it was the only it was the biggest electronic song of of you know all time. The only thing is, it had no electronics. <laughs> <laughs> that is so amazing. you know what I'm saying. It's so great. So every dance I went to, all these you know dance um, uh, conventions and everything like that, and everybody's looking for the newest sound, and everybody's making you know sounds go. Whoo, whoo, and do all these things. Everybody's fighting all over you know, Norway, Finland, always trying to find a better sound. He goes back to regular guitar, a little drum playing, a regular cool bass part, and that that guy doing his little Daft Punk thing, and that's it. Biggest record of all time. <laughs> it is wild. It, so you can never. Uh, it's really hard to, you know, um, to see what <laughs> foresee the future yeah. or what's going to happen. You're right. The music industry can change at any time and i have no idea what it's going to do or where it's going <laughs> so you know we just follow that we just stay on the, you know, we just sail away on the ship and see what happens <laughs> and you've i mean you again like you've done every aspect of it like you've seen the ins and outs when we say music industry you've kind of seen it and done it all you know like like you of anyone would know this how uh you know just how much it changes and all that because again yeah it does change it does it really does so it's like but i mean i think it's in some ways it's exciting I, I don't like the fact that we don't make money selling records anymore you know yeah and i'm just hoping that they're going to come up with some some new avenues that are you know available to more people than you know the, the people who can go out and make millions touring you know because there are a lot of artists out, out there a lot of musicians and they have to figure out how to, you know, how to survive. They oh yeah. Can, they can't go out there and command, you know, twenty grand a gig. You know, they get they they have to pay to play. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, working so, musicians. Yeah. If you're not if you're not like up there as one of the, you know, one of the big ones, or you know, playing the arenas or doing things like that, like a lot of people, like you're working musicians. You gotta, you know. Right. Right. I know. I know. So you know, right right now, as we uh, close this up. Where can uh you know where can people find the book? Where can they find you online? Where can they find all that good stuff? Which I mean, again, I highly recommend getting this book. It is it is absolutely amazing. 
Well, thank you very much. Well, it's all right there online. Um, you can actually get autographed copies uh, of the book on my website, which is www.jeanbevois.com. Um, J-E-A-N-B-E-A-U-V-O-I-R.com. And um, also it's available at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and pretty much all the online stores. Um, and yeah, check my Facebook as well. I have an official page and a personal page. And between all of those sites, yeah, we'll keep you in tune of what's going <laughs> Any? Uh, do you have any book signings uh, lined up? I've been doing some virtual virtual events, so I can, everything ends up on the um, Facebook page or on my website every time I'm doing something. So there will be some things coming up. But we'll keep you posted. Very nice, very nice. Well, I mean, John, this is this has been amazing. I I've had so much fun talking to you. Everybody, everybody, <laughs> go pick up the uh, book. And you're right. I mean, we could I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. You are uh, you've done it all, and I like talking about it all. But yeah, everyone, go check Thank out. Bet my soul on rock and roll. It is an amazing book. I cannot wait to finish it. I'm gonna. I'll probably keep reading it tonight. It is uh, been oh, great. Of course, good, good. All right. But uh, <laughs> I've been talking to John, and now we're gonna play. I don't know. We'll play some plasmatics and a bunch of different stuff. We'll we'll now play a bunch of music from you right here. On the Power Chord Hour. One, two, one, two, fuck you!
I'm at the ground line making a sound The smell of death is all around And at night when the cold wind blows No one cares, nobody knows I don't want to be buried in a big cemetery To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Molders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones And at night when the moon is bright Someone cries something ain't right I don't want to be buried In a pet cemetery
Right here on the 100th episode of the Power Court Hour podcast. That was today's guest, John Bouvoir, with his song, Drive You Home. His voice is absolutely amazing. I mean, outside of, you know, great musician, like bassist and guitarist and like, you know, record producer. I mean, my God, he has a set of pipes on him for sure. Before that was the Ramones with Pet Cemetery off the Jean Bouvoir produced album Brain Drain. And he also helped write that song and also played bass on that recording. If you know anything about uh, Brain Drain, that was D.D. Ramones' last record with the Ramones. And he wasn't particularly, uh, you know, he wasn't he wasn't super involved with the band at the uh, end there. I think he was about... I think he was about done with the band, and I actually wish we could have uh, talked to John more a little more about that and, uh, you know, Dee's departure and everything right after Brain Drain. But, uh, yeah, John did a lot on uh, Pet Cemetery, the song, and, I mean, also just Brain Drain as a whole. He uh, he did a ton on there, even playing a lot of the uh, instruments. So a nice little side note there if you didn't know that. And opening up that block of music, that was John with his punk Motown bass. I loved, uh, we were talking about that earlier. That was a song we were talking about, Master Plan, where, you know, Plasmatics, where he's playing punk rock. But you can hear that James Jamerson influence from, uh, you know, Motown, just that like, you know, not just straight up root notes from, you know, your your traditional punk rock, uh, you know, really moving around the neck and throwing those little accents in and doing those uh, doing those little things that sometimes punk bassists forget about. But, uh, you know, John, John is not one of those guys. He uh, he remembered all about it. And uh, you heard it right there on there. So there's something for you, something plasmatic, something from his solo career, something he produced. I mean, again, he is uh, he's done it all. He's seen it all. I could have talked to him for easily another three hours. I can't even tell you how many questions I uh, I just skipped because all of a sudden it was like we were well over an hour in, and uh, we had to, we had to start wrapping things up. But, uh, yeah, cannot say enough thing, good things about John. That was so much fun talking to him. That was really, really cool. Definitely go pick up his book, Bet My Soul, on Rock and Roll, Diary of a Black Punk Icon. And uh, it is really good. I'm, I'm, I'm not halfway through. I guess I'm getting close to halfway through done. And uh, it's already amazing. I've been reading it for about a week and cannot put it down. It is, I mean, the way the, way the guy just nonchalantly talks about, like, you know, I'm on tour with Gary U.S. Bonds, and we're doing the Dick Clark tour, and like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley would sometimes like ask him to like come up and play on short notice, which kind of talked about in the interview. But like just reading it is so funny because it's like to anybody I think reading that they're gonna go like like what the fuck like 
a 15-year-old just can get up there and play with, I mean, like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. Like, that's insane. And, and you know, I mean, you read it, you're reading his book, it's just like, you know, it's just another kind of part of his career. And, I mean, that's and that's just the beginning. I mean, you keep going through. His career is full of those moments of, you know, just, I mean, he turned down, we didn't talk about it, but, you know, a big, uh, a big story, which I'm sure he's talked about a ton in interviews lately, uh, you know, doing, talking about the book, is uh, turning down Prince to join Prince's band and, uh, you know, not wanting, not wanting to be, you know, he made a great point and I'm not, I'm not going to try to quote it verbatim because I can't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of, you know, you really can't name who Prince's bass players were, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's cool that you would get to be Prince's bass player, but that's what you would be exactly that Prince's bass player, you know, not, not known by name, kind of, you know, who knows where you're going to go after that. You're kind of defined and stuck there and it's not what he wanted. And I, I respect that an insane amount as a musician to go, you know, that's some integrity to go because this was, I mean, this was not like, early on before Prince was like, you know, something or anything like that. Like this was, this was really in the middle of Prince being, you know, I mean, just the powers that be being, being like purple rain Prince in the eighties, like that, that kind of Prince, that was the Prince that, uh, John, John, uh, said no to. So, I mean, to have some musical integrity like that, I think is absolutely amazing to bet on yourself and instead go your own route. And, you know, really his, uh, his solo stuff, which, I'd heard some stuff, but really kind of kind of jumped into his catalog of like solo, like including like that '80s stuff. Uh, more recently, getting ready for the interview, and like his again, like his voice is just amazing, and he crafted just on his own some amazing, amazing like you know just really catchy pop songs, and really knows how to write a hook, and you know again just an amazing singer. But uh, that was really fun. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. And uh, it's funny, it, it, if you're listening to this on the podcast, it's the 100th episode uh, radio show, I believe we're up to 279, but uh, you know, we get to celebrate the 100th episode of the show twice. I, uh, I got to celebrate the 100th episode back in 2018 of the radio show, and now we get to do it again for the podcast, and uh, it's very cool. I Actually, I didn't even uh, mean for it to be, Jean, to be our 100th uh, guest, or 100th uh, episode, I should say. But it just kind of worked that way when I was having him on was the uh, day before the 100th episode. And I'm like, oh, like you could not ask for like what an amazing person to have for the 100th episode. And I've wanted um, I've wanted to interview him for a while. And uh, what better time than his book being out. So, you know, that was uh, that was awesome to have him on. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank John again. Go check it out. Bet my soul on rock and roll. Really, really good book. Cannot recommend it enough. And, uh, yeah, I think that is it for this episode. So if you like what you heard, go follow us online at Power Chord Hour on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Go find us on YouTube. Just search Power Chord Hour. Please subscribe to the YouTube page. Uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you probably already know you can find us wherever you enjoy your podcast. But if you don't know, you can listen to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, if you would, rate, review, and subscribe wherever that is that you're listening. And uh, hit me up, PowerCordHour at gmail.com. Always love to hear from people who listen to the show. And uh, I'm going to have some PowerCordHour, some more stickers. I just ordered some. They should be here within the next week or so. So if you want to hit me up, PowerCordHour at gmail.com. I will gladly send you some free PCH stickers. 
And uh, yeah, so that is going to be it. That is episode 100 of the Power Code Hour podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this here podcast. I cannot believe we're 100 episodes in. It feels like it was just yesterday when I was like, hey, you know what this radio show could use? A podcast element. You know, like like that's something we should do. And, uh, and actually, really, I thought about it for a long time and then finally did it. But uh, again, it feels just like yesterday that I, uh, that I was recording that, that first whatever, the episode one of this that was probably like 20 minutes long just going like, hey, this is what the podcast is going to be. And, uh, and really, honestly, the podcast has probably become way more than whatever I said it was going to on episode one because I've ended up doing a lot more of the podcast than I expected to. You know, doing the – I was already like four – yeah, four years into the radio show by the time we started doing this podcast and it was kind of a uh, – you know, I mean, it was something I was going to do, but I didn't even know originally it was going to be a, a weekly thing. For a while, I thought I was going to do like monthly rundowns like I do like, you know, the at the end of the month each each uh, month and then maybe like post interviews as I did them. But uh, no, now it's become a weekly thing. Pretty early on, it became a weekly thing. But, uh, you know, I'm really happy that we're up 100 episodes now. That is crazy. So, uh, I mean, I guess if you put 100 episodes of these, 279 of the uh, radio show, I mean, there, I've done a shit ton of Power Court Hour episodes. That's, that's, if you do the math on all that, you get a shit ton. And that is exactly what I've done here with the, uh, with the Power Court Hour. So for the Power Court Hour, I'm Anthony Merchant, celebrating 100 episodes of the podcast and thanking you so much for listening. <laughs>